What's up, guys? Today, we have a very special conversation with my man, Taylor Ammons. He is a roofing company owner in Tennessee. We dive a little bit into his business, but more importantly, we dive into his personal transformation from someone who was really at rock bottom and is now someone who is energetic, inspiring, invigorating. He's making an impact with everyone that he comes across. So we really had a deep conversation today. Taylor has the gift of gab. He can tell really good stories. And I know for a fact that there's gonna be someone who is watching this, someone that is listening to this, who needs to hear this message that Taylor is sharing today. So guys, enjoy the conversation with my friend, Taylor Ammons. Man, Taylor, it's an honor to be here with you today on your birthday, man. Thanks for making the time. Yeah, man. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, for having me on and accepting my invite to to want to come on here and and do the show. So thanks, man. I, I'm glad to be here. I wouldn't have picked a different day. I think a birthday is a great day to shoot a podcast. Fantastic. All right. Well, obviously this is the highlight of your birthday, but uh, what other plans do you have for for your big day? I actually, I had a call. It was my first Zoom call ever with an insurance carrier. There was a there was a risk manager, two representatives from the insurance company, and the adjuster on a Zoom call going over a final invoice. That was pretty cool to be able to be a part of that. So I knocked that out. Had breakfast with a supplier this morning. So he bought me bought me breakfast. That was cool. And then gonna check on a job site after this. I have an interview for a sales manager over lunch, and then I got a smoking hot date tonight going somewhere she's probably told me and will kill me once this airs but <laughs> we're going somewhere for my birthday that is like that sounds like a typical day in the life of an entrepreneur of a business owner like all those different things insurance carrier meeting meeting with the supplier who is did you say beacon yeah yeah right. love to give those guys a shout out we love beacon as for well. sure we have, a, we have a meeting with them tomorrow and uh, yeah, going to check out a job, launch meeting, podcast, date night, like entrepreneurs do a lot in a given day. Isn't it crazy how many like different types of things you do? Oh man, it's it's unreal. Like when you really, when you really think about the hats that you wear, like it, it might've even been Benny that took that picture or was it you that had all of the hats stacked on your head? It was one of you guys, I think. Yeah, it was both of us. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And uh, But when you really break it down, business owners, entrepreneurs, especially on the small business side, do a lot, wear a lot of hats. It's a lot of fun. For some reason, we're obsessed with this lifestyle and uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. But, you know, having that focus on the on the future of, all right, who do I need to hire to get some of these damn hats off? is is where i'm trying to continue yeah. to pursue on through so awesome yeah uh let's let's definitely dig into that want to dig into your story really whatever whatever you want to share but give the audience a little bit of an intro as to uh who is taylor uh whatever you want background what you're up to your your business paragon roofing all that good stuff yep awesome well yeah but thanks again for having me on. Um, but everybody, my name's Taylor. I own a smaller residential roofing company and we're based in Nashville. I've been in the industry, I, I think coming up on five years now. I was in automotive sales for quite a while and I always said that I was gonna be a car guy for my entire life. And then in between 
jobs at the at the car dealership, I picked up a job waiting tables at a restaurant in Warner Robins, and that ended up moving into a management position there. So I've, I've had some management experience for quite a while. And I never thought that I would find an industry that worked more hours than selling cars until I was a manager in a restaurant. <laughs> Holy cow. Uh, because, and at the time I was a raging alcoholic too, which I'm excited to get into. Um, and so it, it's so hard to get up bright and early. You're hungover. Go get the, go get the, uh, restaurant started, opened up, run lunch service. And then from two to six, we would either get a nap or try and go to the owner's house and do some day drinking before we went back to the restaurant to be able to put up with all those customers. And then be there till 12, one o'clock in the morning and then uh, wash your hands and do it all over again. So it was exhausting. And I think I was making 1150 an hour. So, but I didn't, I didn't really care about the money. I'm, I'm super passionate about whatever I'm doing when I'm doing it. And so now I've, I've fallen in love with the roofing industry. I actually met the guy that first brought me into the roofing industry, checking into state probation in Georgia. And I don't, I don't even think I've ever told you that, but we're sitting in the probation office waiting to go check in with our probation officer. And he was on the phone having conversations. I'm in all my car gear. And when we went to leave, he waited on me and he's like, Hey man, uh, car guys make excellent roofing salespeople. And I was like, man, I, I appreciate it, but I'm a car guy. And, uh, you know, I was, I was still kind of struggling with life choices and stuff at the time that again, we'll get into. Um, but he gave me a business card and I, I threw it in the door of my car and I think two, three months later, I had a bad month and I said, well, let me at least go interview with this guy let me have a conversation with him, see what, what roofing sales even is. I'm like, how do you sell roofing? I didn't even know what an Eve was. And so, you know, to be where I am today is a lot of fun, but I, I interviewed with him and he explained to me this whole process of, of door-to-door and insurance restoration and the commissions that were possible with that. And I was like, you're, you're kidding. So I left the industry that day, started working with him, and then for the next six months proceeded to just get my face kicked in trying to sell roofing. You know, shameless plug here to Adam Benzman's book. I really wish that thing would have been around when I first got (laughs) into the industry because it would have saved me a a lot of headache, man. But I I love the roofing industry. I, I love where it's going. I do think, you know, that roofers have really inserted themselves in the insurance industry pretty pretty heavily and unlike what a lot of contractors do or or operate in so that's that's something that we're currently trying to transition away from because i i think at this point the carriers have caught on to all of those people like roofers we think we're slick like we'll have this whole great verbiage of how we're gonna explain this to the insurance adjuster and uh the carriers know every bit of it. They train on the stuff that we are emailing them. So I, I feel like we're almost doing the clients a, a disservice by being involved because the carriers don't owe us anything. The carriers owe it to the to the policyholder. And so I, I think we actually probably drag it out a little more than if we're like, hey, here's our price. Here's what we'll do it for. The insurance company's giving you 10 grand to get your job started. Well, I can finance the balance until you're reimbursed from the insurance company. And unless you've got the money in savings, but I'd be happy to finance the project for you. And then when the when the project gets completed, we'll give you a nice project completion report with all the code documentation you may need to, to support this file. And then you can submit that to the insurance company and ask to be reimbursed, especially with how insurance policies are changing. Because 
unless a roofing contractor has reviewed a policy or seen a policy or the homeowner knows maybe they work in insurance, they're starting to work in way more exclusions and tightening up way more. So that old argument where it's just like, hey, majority of my customers are getting their roof replaced for for only the the measly thousand dollar cost of their deductible. Those are starting to get more few and far between. Or when the big discontinued shingle argument and then the carriers are starting to do more endorsements with matching clauses, things like that to, to exclude or cap how much money that is. And then contractor goes in with his pants down, gung-ho, trying to do an argument on uniform appearance or matching, and then they just get destroyed with policy language. You know, that's we're, we're transitioning to try and just stay in our lane as contractors. Be the expert. Uh, and that's, that's why I want to try and get on some of these podcasts and just continue to expand my network, continue to get my face out there because I, I truly want to be an advocate in this insurance game. I recently joined up with the APA, the American Policyholders Association, and I was telling Doug over there that I, I can't wait to be able to go to D.C. with him sometime and, and help advocate for policyholders when I'm not having to wear all these hats <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that I have to wear. But really, Joe, it, you know some of this, but a lot of your viewers may or may not. It it wasn't it wasn't all roses though. I really enjoy where I'm at now. I'm so grateful. Uh, January, I think 23rd, I'll celebrate two years without a drop of alcohol, which I'm grateful for. They tried to get me at RoofCon in Orlando. My team went out to a bar and uh, in Orlando, and my mom and I went, and both of us are in recovery. And uh, my mom went, and she was like, "I need a soda water with lime and a soda water with cranberry and lime." And I'm early enough in my sobriety, I watch these bartenders. And so she immediately, two plastic cups, Tito's, boom. And I'm like, whoa, 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 hey, no no alcohol in those. And then she vehemently was apologizing. But uh, it was it was so funny because I'm like, oh, you'll, you'll throw me out. I promise you, if, if that gets <laughs> into my body, you will throw me out. But uh, wow. But yeah, I mean. Oh, go ahead. No, that that that's an awesome intro. I never know. I never knew I got into roofing sales. I yep. want to say his name here. Is it who I think it is? Uh, no. Oh. This guy. This guy owned a, a roofing company in Georgia, and he was a sharp kid, very smart, super knowledgeable. But he was one of those. He may see this. I hope he does. And um, he was a, a great dude, cool guy. But he was one of those where if a storm happened anywhere. He would deploy. He, mm -hmm. he got in the industry as a storm chaser. And so he had multiple locations, one in Warner Robins, Georgia. We opened one in Augusta. He had one in Raleigh, North Carolina, one in Dothan, Alabama, and then one over in Bossier City, Louisiana. And he was actually interviewed by Matt Mulholland on, on his podcast a few years ago. So he loved to deploy in storm chase and he made a lot of money doing it, but it was a lot of door to door and no, no real training. And so I got I got moved around a lot. I was able to kind of turn lemons into lemonade and then got settled in in Augusta trying to help open a location there. But it was kind of like, hey, I'm going to send you guys to Augusta. I'm going to put you in an Airbnb for two months and I need y'all to go start a location. Yeah. And so you've got me and two other door to door guys like, how the hell do we do this? And so I started trying to watch as much YouTube training videos as I could to to learn like what do you even say like why do i keep getting punched in the face at these doors 
Lee Hate style, you know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, so I, I had to really learn all of that. And I, I think that's what's embedded in me, the importance of continuing education yeah. and training for the sales force that I'm, I'm looking to bring in because I, I understand why there's a lot of turnover in our industry. And it's because these guys get tossed to the wolves or they get tossed to a top sales rep who doesn't want some new dude shadowing him. And so they kind of blow them off or they just, they get into a neighborhood and they say, you go knock that door and tell them we're inspecting roofs and can you get up on there? Uh, and so there's definitely, definitely a process to all of that. But, uh, and then no, my wife and I were, had met on Facebook and we were doing a long distance relationship thing. And I was trying to get her to move to Columbia, South Carolina, because after we established Augusta, the, the owner of that roofing company wanted me to go over towards Columbia, South Carolina and do the same thing and get a location open. And that one was going to be mine. So I was trying to get her to move down to Columbia, South Carolina with me. And I came to visit Nashville one day and she was like, hey, I like Nashville. And I've been with the VA for at that time, I think it was 14 or 15 years. And she's like, no disrespect, but you sell roofing. You can do that anywhere. And so we, we had the conversation and I knew that I needed to get away from the environment that I was in because I was beginning to, to slip in, in drug usage again and stuff like that. Cause I was starting to make money, but I, I wasn't, I wasn't sober yet. So I, I didn't have the willpower or the mentality to like say no. And I had the, I had the funds to be able to buy drugs. And so, um, I, I was able to go out do some interviews here in Nashville and was offered a job same day. So left the house a couple hours later, came home with a roofing sales position in Nashville, told them I need a week to move, drove to Augusta, packed my stuff up, relocated to Nashville and been living happily ever after. Happily ever after, man. That is awesome. So much, uh, so much to your story there. I want to dig into a couple uh, aspects. You mentioned, and I, this topic is like, it gets me going, like the lack of training in the roofing industry and I love this oh, industry. It's we, we, this is our industry. Like we're in it, you know, I, and there's so many amazing people like you in it. There are so many companies that I, and I have empathy because I think it's, I think it's ignorance. Like, you know, owners just don't know how to run a business and how to train people. But it's like, yeah, you just throw a bunch of dudes like you in a storm dorm and like just, you know, go out there and, and bang doors and there's no training. And then, like I said, if there is, it's like, oh, we got this top guy. Let me go throw the newbies with that guy. Like, that's the training. And then roofing company owners are like, man, it's so hard to find good people and keep good people. And, you know, and it's like this, they're not taking ownership of that. So again, like I have tremendous empathy for that because like, I didn't know anything when I first started either. You just develop these skills and you learn. It's like, oh, if I want awesome people, I need to build a great company and a great culture. And if I want to retain them, I need to be able to set them up for success and train them and just look internally at that. Like I've hired people even this year, a couple of people that are no longer with us. And, you know, it's, there's, there's, you know, two sides to the story there and both ended up amicably, but I look back and I reflect, I'm like, like, was I really setting that person up for success in the best way possible? And uh, the answer in, you know, at least one of those cases was, no, I could have done a better job and next time I will. But there's such a lack of training in, in the industry, you know, whether it's business or, you know, marketing or sales or whatever. That's just something that I see so many of the successful companies have in common. They have a focus on training. So 
How have you, or for, first of all, before we get into that, paint a picture of Paragon Roofing. You guys are in Nashville, you know, whatever you want to share, size of company, what your goals are, what you want to build, that sort of thing. Oh, man. All right. Uh, well, Buckle up. <laughs> Buckle Oh, my gosh. I, I hey. absolutely love this. So, hey, hold on. For anyone listening or watching out there, if you're listening, you can't see it, but Taylor just like scooched up to the edge of his seat right now. So, <laughs> if you don't have a freaking vision, if you don't have a vivid vision for your company that gets you to sit up on in the on the edge of your seat then go do some work and figure that out so you get to that point that was cool man i love that you're going to come through this this my screen right now oh dude i i love it. i almost love talking about this more than like all the crap that's happened in my past but uh so Paragon Roofing, residential roofing company here in Middle Tennessee. We've, you know, we were doing roofing and gutters, and then that began to expand into. I'd pick up some siding jobs, pick up some window jobs. I've got some painters that, if I, if obviously somebody has a roof leak, and we go in and do the roof repair, I'll, I'll offer to either pass them my interior guy or uh, handle it for them. Oftentimes, they they just want us to handle it for them, and. Uh, I don't mind majority of the time on insurance because it's usually a shoe-in on O&P if you're able to go in and, and do some interior work as well because for some reason, if you add a paintbrush into the mix, it becomes extremely complex and the carriers are like, we'll give you O&P now. But if you have 37 exterior trades, go go pound sand. So when I, when I first started, I had the vision that me and my old business partner would both be able to produce about a million dollars a piece because we were both at, at the door, potentially two, two and a half million dollar annual sales guys. Like we were pretty strong at the door, okay. uh, able to build rapport. We were hungry. We enjoyed door knocking. We enjoyed all of that. So we're like, okay, well, we can have our own company and do about two million a piece and produce it all. But if you've ever owned your own company and had to produce a million or two million dollars worth of, of, roofing and exterior work, you're not able to sell that much because there's a lot that goes into it. I, I get why such a high percentage of, of roofing and contracting and home service businesses go under within their first couple of years because you've got to keep up with your sales, your production, your AR. You've got to keep up with the legalities. You've got to make sure you're doing everything on the up and up. Keep up with state and local regulations. Handle punch outs, handle customer complaints, put out fires. So there's a lot of stuff that takes up your time. And I would probably say maybe 10% of your time as a business owner can actually be put towards revenue generating activities. And so that's why I think it's super important to be able to have a vast network that can refer you business. You don't have to depend so much on door to door, you know, <clears throat> contractor dynamics and, uh, you know, restoration referral system, things like that. Where we are going to be going is my business partner left. He went back into the med device industry and I was like, I got licensed as a public adjuster here in Tennessee. And a roofing contractor, how the law reads, is a roofing contractor cannot act as a public adjuster unless they're licensed as one in the state. And so I really wanted to learn a lot of that so that I could understand what insurance policies were, how they actually paid for things. And then I had the brilliant idea that, all right, well, we're going to build a roofing company that instead of sales guys, we're going to have PAs. 
And so we're going to work through and use these as we're going to be their PAs. We're going to work through the claims like that. That would be a nightmare. When somebody gets licensed as a PA, they're just going to be a PA. Like they're not going to be worried about going and, and selling the job. So we've since audibled from that, but we're going to end up probably close to 2 million in revenue this year. I think year one, I did about 735. We started in March of 21, 22. We did about one, three. We should do about two this year. And I'm in the process of interviewing sales managers because I've got a thought that you see a lot of companies get to 5 million, get to 10 million. And then when they get about above that 10 million, you see a lot of times their customer service begins to decline. Their quality of service, it tends to decline because they've got so many different subs working, so many moving parts, and there's not great communication. And so our mission is to provide a white glove experience for our customers from the initial inspection meeting with them through final walk around and check collection and review requests. And so both of the companies I ever worked for, we were we were studs on the sales side. And then they would have materials delivered and a sub crew show up and that sub crew would go out and put this roof on. And then if you wanted a project manager, that was you. And so I so badly wanted to provide a great experience for my customers. I would, I would manage the jobs, work the neighborhood, try and generate some revenue that way, because I wanted to make sure everything that I told the customers we were going to do, we were able to follow through on. And plus, I don't like customers to call me and be like, hey, my gutter's damaged from the roof install. I want to be the guy that says, hey, I damaged your gutter during this roof install. I owe you a run of gutters or I owe you gutters or better yet, take the gutters down before the job, but that's neither here nor there. So we're, we're currently setting up a franchise model. I'm, I'm pumped about it. That's where my mind's going right now, Joe. I don't even think I've told you that. The look on your face says no. So well, I'm, I'm writing that down. <laughs> yeah. So I, I want to have a general manager, which is going to be my hat for right now that oversees a sales manager. And I want to cap the sales manager at eight reps. I've done a lot of research and they say about that eight sales reps allows the sales manager to be able to be pretty hands-on. I know there's probably people that would disagree. I don't care. A sales manager over eight reps, a production manager with two production assistants, one at four to five million, one when you get to seven to 10 million, a quality control supervisor that has two quality control technicians under him. They're more of like our code enforcement or our SOP enforcement on the production side. Their whole job is going to be to go snitch on jobs that aren't going the way they're supposed to be going, to inspect and make sure everything's built to an extreme quality. Then we're going to get over to an office manager who's going to be overseeing two in-house estimators. Those in-house estimators are then going to be able to support the sales team and be able to write some of these estimates for these roofers or these inspectors while they're out doing revenue generating activities. So they're not having to just write multiple estimates. You know, they'll be there to assist the sales reps. Not so much of the inside outside sales model. I, I do really like that, but I also believe that your guys that are out in the field that are the face with the client should be the face with the client throughout the whole project. We do a warm introduction to the production department so that they know that they can have conversations with production, but I, I still want that initial person to be the one ensuring a smooth project. And then finally, the the marketing director will then oversee our media team that's filming content, doing podcasts, if you will, videoing jobs, editing those down, 
um, doing hiring and recruiting videos, things like that, just all brand content that's going to go into the company. So that will give us somewhere between 17 and 19 employees and generating somewhere between about eight and 12 million in, in revenue with those sales guys. Then we want to go out and replicate that. That'll be Paragon Roofing Nashville. Then I want to go do the same thing like in Franklin, which is about 30 minutes south of Nashville. That way we can service a little more of Middle Tennessee that way. Then I want to go up towards like the Mount Juliet area and do it in that top portion. And then when we have those three locations set up, that's going to be over about the next three years. We'll take that core building like development team to these other locations and then we'll start filling seats on the bus like in uh, Good to Great to talk about okay. filling the seats on your bus, having the right butts in the right seats on your bus that's going in, in a specific direction. And then once we have those three locations, I want to go then establish like a corporate headquarters that will then oversee that. So the job of corporate is going to be the marketing, the advertising, the legal compliance, things like that. And then Corporate will then have some regional guys that oversee the general managers at these locations. Corporate would also handle books and stuff like that for each separate location so that the branch's sole job is generating sales and ensuring 100% customer satisfaction. You know, the white glove experience, if you will. Then we want to bundle that. I, I want to bind every system and process we have, PDFs, notebooks, three ring binders, and I want to be able to present that to private equity uh, to be able to do an exit. And I, I want us to be so tight that when that gets ready to present to private equity, we say, you're going to want this deal or we're going to start using this franchise model to gobble up one to three million dollar contractors all around the country and try and build a roofing franchise around this structured model to get those guys doing one to three million up to eight to 10. But not only that, I want to bring in a lot of the stuff from Revolt and the program, the two groups that I'm in, and make sure that, because if you get a contractor that's stuck at one to three million, that's that's a leadership thing. There's They are not the type of person capable of running a five to seven or $10 million company. So when we come in to help in those roll-ups, we're going to be spending some one-on-one -on -one time with the head of that company to find out how do we need to get you aligned in your faith, your family, your fitness, and your finances to be the person that is the GM of a seven to $10 million company. Because we have a goal next year to be at 5 million. We could potentially do a little bit more, but with the structure that we're going to have in place and where I'm at with my mindset, I, I know that I'm the type of person, like Hunter Ballou likes to say, I am a seven to $10 million CEO Time just hasn't lapsed yet. Yeah. But mentally, mentally, that that's where I'm at. And we've got a super clear vision to be able to get there that we're going to do that in over the next four to five years. And then if we go exit route, then I love Job Nimbus. I love Company Cam. I love Sumo Quote. But there's so many softwares that are so interdependent on one another. And so we do a big exit, have some money. I have a lot of ideas that I've been working on of an all-in-one software for contractors and home services where when you go into your platform, you put that customer's information in, depending on whether they are a prospect, a general contractor, a real estate agent, an insurance agent, like they have different forms on their 
their site. And then if it's a, a potential prospect, then inside of there, they can pull their storm reports. They can run their digital media. They can go through, do all their production, their material orders, things like that. Everything that we have to hop to these other systems to do, I want to be able to have one that does it all. And so if, if we come off of a big exit, then we're just going to start pouring some money into SaaS and try and really build something to be able to like revolutionize the industry based on the bottlenecks that I see that we have. So to answer your question, Joe, that's the vision. And that's why I sit at the front of my chair when I get the opportunity to share that, because I, I freaking love it. I think your eight to $10 million locations can provide a lot of value, still have a pretty quick turnaround time and not get into that 10, 12, 14, 16 weeks out because I'm doing 30 mil and be able to provide a white glove experience from start to finish at, at multiple locations. Wow. I'm speechless, Brand. That is super. Boom. Mic drop. Hold on. One, one mic. I'm not using this mic, so I'm going to drop it. Boom. Uh, yep. I have some fun with it. Man, that is amazing. So many, and I know you've been on a few of our, our, like our calls as, you know, as a client over the past year. And, and that's something that, man, we dive into with everyone. Like everyone's like, yeah, I want to, you know, I want to hit 5 million next year, 10 million to whatever, a hundred million. And it's always like, why, why, or, you know, what is the, what's the clear vision? Not like the high in the sky goal, because you saw someone else on Facebook doing that. Like, what is your vision? It's like 97% of business owners don't have that. And that's why, you know, I get, again, I got to pull up this book. Like, that's why I have this book on my desk at all times. And it's something that we preach to everyone. Cause like every podcast episode, team meeting, like I'm holding that, uh, that darn book up. It's so important. What drives all that, man? Like you, like why? The biggest thing is, is, I mean, I, I came from a family that did their absolute best to raise me, but they didn't know. Like I, I was raised that. You, you go to school, you get good grades, you go to college, you get a job, you save money, you retire, you have a family like that never interested me. I never it never like spawned in my head. We don't have kids. I, I like kids. I don't know that I would even say I love them, but I like kids uh, <laughs> I like my nieces and nephews. I love my nieces and nephews. Yeah, yeah. But I've got friends that have had kids and they they could always picture it when they were growing up. Like, hey, one day I'll be able to take my son to baseball. One day I'll be able to watch my kids open presents. It's never crossed my mind. And so I feel like I'd be doing a disservice to bring kids into the world because I'd be like, man, these guys got in the way of my plans. Uh, <laughs> and, um, yeah, that's so, fair. you know, I, I definitely I've always been one of those where I either had no money to do anything or very little money. And the only thing I wanted to do is get high and stay in an apartment. And so I want to be able to do what I want to when I want to with my wife. Like if, if we go in and we want to take a trip to Belize, I want us to be able to book it and take the time off from our businesses to go to Belize and spend time together. But the, the main thing that really drives me, Joe, is I was always I was always supposed to be a drug addict. I was always supposed to be an inmate. I was always supposed to be in and out of jails. I was always supposed to be an absolute nobody because that's what I was all through my 20s. I was never supposed to make it. I was supposed to be a statistic. You know, I've got two or three very close people to me that have passed away from either drugs or alcohol. I was supposed to be with those guys. And so the fact that I'm not and I'm making these moves to try and, and change my life completely 
all boils down to. I want people that are still struggling with stuff in their life to know that if you intentionally make a decision to change your life, the sky is the absolute limit. But had it not been for the clarity to get clear-headed, sober, and change my life, I would have been all of those things I listed. And so I want people that are struggling to see me, see what we're doing, know my story, and that I don't hide behind it, but I stand behind it, and provide hope to those people because when it's dark, it's dark as hell, Joe. And so I want to make sure that people see that and say, man, I've got to get sober because I want that. I want that guy's energy. That's what I want. Dude, that is an amazing, that's one of the best whys I've ever heard, man. That is a, that's awesome. Thank you. Cause it's, you know, it's a little bit about you, but it's, it's more about other people, right? Like what well, they say, yep. success is about you and significance is about others. And it sounds like you're, you want, you want both. And that's, that's amazing, man. And it's just, it's fun going through the journey because at first when I got sober, I got sober for me because like literally it was going to kill me. But now um, I, I get some DMs from people. I get some messages from people where they're like, hey, I'm struggling with this. Can you talk? And I try and bend over backwards to, to talk and help those guys out. I hate it when I drop the ball and get busy and like miss a call or something like that, because I always want to be that guy that no matter where we go in life, I'll pick up the phone for somebody that's still struggling or hurting because I want them to know like, hey, man, I love you. I care about you. Get your stuff together and, and let's let's pack it up and move on. But I don't, I don't want to hear all of the, the lip smacking of this. Oh, I want it so bad, you know, as I'm snorting lines, you know, I did that for a long time. Right. Man, I wish I could change my ways. No, you don't. (laughs) Yeah. Actions express priorities. What was it that that made you uh, finally, finally commit to getting sober? You know, the first time I was ever arrested, I was 15 years old. It was a Friday night, Saturday morning, leaving a high school football game. A friend of mine's older cousin bought me an 18 pack at like 15, bought him like a six pack of Smirnoff ice. And so we rode around at 15 years old. I I remember I traded like three beers for a Marlboro Light when we were hammered drunk. Well, it was a terrible trade. I would never do that now. (laughs) And uh, we ended up getting getting arrested for a burglary charge because we were hammered drunk and broke into this like model home in this subdivision. And we just like ransacked the place because we were 15 and hammered. And then got put on probation for that. And then 16, 17, I I was pretty good. I remember leaving a party in high school, coming home to my dad and saying that I'd left the party because some people started smoking pot and I didn't want to be around it. And so, you know, right, great son, you know, good job, kid. And then at 18, started smoking pot. It was okay. I enjoyed the way it made me feel. A a lot of people, I think initially may start doing drugs because of like childhood trauma. I I really didn't have any, you know, I didn't have a family member that was abusing me, anything like that. Like nothing like, I liked the way it felt. I liked how it opened me up out of my shell. I liked that I could talk to girls. I liked that I had the confidence and the swagger and, you know, I could have a good time. So that was why I started drinking and you, and like smoking weed. And then get down to college, get arrested again for underage drinking, and then started doing pills and cocaine pretty hard in college. And then I realized that you don't, you don't have to go to class in college. Like the professors don't take role. They don't care. But you do have to go to class if you want to pass the dang class. And so uh, I remember showing up to a history midterm. I was 15 minutes late because we were 
uh, hot box in a, a bedroom smoking a bunch of pot. And so there was like four or five of us in there smoking. And I'm like, oh, I got to go take an exam. And I walked into the room and the whole class just looked at me because I guarantee you the whole room smelled like weed after I walked in. And uh, I got like a B on the exam, but uh, that was probably the only time that that ever happened because I was just skipping stuff. So was working with the university at the time down at a college in South Georgia when I got put on academic probation because I wasn't I wasn't passing classes. Uh, first semester, I had like a 3.5 or 3.8 GPA made the dean's list. Second semester, I had a 1.7. Third semester, because I technically never made it to be a sophomore from credit, uh, I think I was less than a 1. And so they put me on academic probation. And when you get put on academic probation, you can no longer work for the university because you're not, you're not a student anymore. So I lost my job, had to move home. And... Uh, when I moved home, I got back into school for mathematics with an engineering track because I wanted to go get a degree in electrical engineering. And I wanted to go get that at, at Georgia Tech. So I was going to do part of my schooling at Georgia Highlands in North Georgia, transfer to Georgia Tech or KSU's School of Engineering, get an engineering degree. And that was when I found automotive sales and had my first $10,000 month. And I'm like, oh, I'm a sales guy now. I'm not... I'm not, uh, I'm not in school anymore, so dropped out of school again, and uh, I, I wish I had went through and at least gotten a degree uh, just to show myself that I could complete something, because I always I always grew up quitting stuff. I quit, yeah. boys, quit baseball my senior year. I quit on school. I mean, there, there was so much stuff that I quit on, and all that does when we're quitting is we set the new standard for our life, and so... By doing that, I was accepting that, hey, if it doesn't work out, it's okay to not do it anymore. And I'm complete opposite of that now. Like we're gonna we're gonna make it work because it has to work. Actually, I think it was before I got into automotive industry. I was working in a factory and never had money. I was always trying to party, always going out. And I think at the time I'm making nine bucks an hour, nine times four, three hundred and some bucks a week pre-tax. And that would be gone that weekend between alcohol, buying some cocaine if we want to, because everybody that's ever done cocaine knows that 300 bucks does not get you a long ways when you're doing coke. So we had this brilliant idea that there was a kid in town that sold a lot of weed. I had a, a friend of mine at the time that was having trouble selling weed because this other guy was in, in the picture. And so I told him, I, I carried a pistol with me everywhere that I went. I, I remember a few times leaving my mom's house where I was living and when I'd hug her to leave, I would have to keep my waist away from her because I didn't want the gun to to touch her and her realize like her son carries a pistol with him. And uh, I, I did it because it was cool. It wasn't like I I was having to protect myself. You know, I was I was running around with some rough people, but that was by choice. Like it, it wasn't like I was having to defend myself. It's just I wanted to be that guy. So we we set up to rob this kid, and so I called him. Had no money, and I said, "I want to buy two ounces from you." I think statute of limitations is gone on this, but I, I did my time on this. And um, we go meet with this kid. I've got the gun in my waistband. Um, me and my co-defendant, he was driving. I got out, got in the passenger seat of this guy's car, and he reaches behind the seat and he pulls like a jar, probably like this big. And then he had a gallon-sized bag that had probably a pound of weed in it, half a pound, something like that. He starts opening up one of the bags in his lap. And then I pulled the gun out and stuck it to his face in the in the car. I thought that this was going to go, gun comes out. He immediately says, hey, man, here's everything. Take it. 
No, dude was ready to die in that car. I start tussling with him a little bit. And then in my head, I'm like, oh, shoot, I'm going to have to shoot this kid because now we're tussling and I, I've got to win this argument because I fully, you don't just walk away and be like, sorry, you know, at that point we're committed. This, this has gone downhill. And uh, so I, I take the gun off of safety and put it to his leg because I'm like, in my mind, I'm like, if I shoot him below the waist, it's not attempted murder. That's wrong. Incorrect. About the time I'm, I'm getting ready to make the decision just to pop one into his leg, uh, my co-defendant opens his car door, so it distracts him, and he turns the other way. Then when he turns back to me, I came across the side of his face with the pistol and hit him. Actually, he was turned this way, so it hit him like right across the back of the head. The safety was still off, and my finger was still on the trigger from where I was fixing to shoot him in the leg. So when I slapped him, the, I pulled the trigger and the gun went off, boom, inside of the car. And so he instantly felt the burn because the, the bullet in his uh, report actually apparently went in and then immediately back out. So it almost shot him in the head. And uh, so he slumped out of the car. I get out of the car, go around and actually set him up on his knees and put the gun at him and told him that he was done selling weed and that we were taking all of his shit and I cracked him with the pistol again in the head. And so cops come because neighbors heard gunshots. We clear the car out of weed. We haul ass back to the to the apartment and throw a party. And so we're just smoking. We're like, oh, everything went well. No biggie. I get pulled over that night. I had a quarter ounce of the weed behind the seat of my truck. And then I had the pistol wrapped inside of a red bandana between my seat because I ran around with like a lot of bloods at the time. And so that, that bandana I'd actually taken off of this dude when I beat him up. And so if I would have been black, they would have immediately hit me with like potentially Rico or gang activity. They never once asked about the bandana, but I threw the pistol into the floorboard when I got pulled over and the cop said he pulled me over from a cracked taillight and come to find out they were already trying to push through to get the warrants. So when he pulled me over, he got the weed and he got the pistol and they were able to use the pistol to match the casings in the car. So I got locked up on an armed robbery, aggravated assault and possession of firearm charge in March of 2011 and spent about 60 something days in the county jail. I had a hundred thousand dollar bond at first, and then after 60 days, they dropped it to 50. My dad did a property bond to get me out. Ended up going to court. Uh, initially, when I was talking with my attorney, because I was writing my co defendant letters because we had concocted a story, and I was telling him, Hey, stick to the story, uh, and we're going to be okay. And he's like, I didn't tell him anything, don't worry about it. Well, we went to pretrial, and they told my testimony where I had told our story of what happened. And then his testimony, his testimony was that he begged me not to do it. I, he, I didn't tell him we were going to do the robbery. I pulled the gun out when we got there. Like he painted it really bad when him and I were both very much so in the wrong, but, uh, they ended up, uh, initially they were wanting to give me my attorney mistaken. We were going to be looking at somewhere around 30 years in prison and he was like, if if the armed robbery sticks, it's a minimum of 10 years before any of the other two charges touch in Georgia. Plus, you're going to go to a level five prison, which you better be about that life if you get to a level five prison. And that didn't include the gun charge or the um, possession of firearm during the commission of a felony. 
and ended up going to court. Don't know how it happened, I guess, grace of God. Um, but they, they dismissed the armed robbery because of a lack of evidence, because the guy that we robbed was saying that we robbed him. We were saying he was trying to rob us. There was a miscommunication. I was defending myself. And so that was, that was really where the defense was. And so they gave me 10 years of probation and I served a little over 60 days in a detention center. And, uh, talk about lucky. I was arrested maybe six or eight times while I was still on on that state probation. I got revoked one time in 2016 for 12 months because I got two DUIs 18 days apart and went on the run. I was terrible on the run. I think I ran for like two, three weeks, and then I got picked up on, on a warrant in my probation officer revoked 12 months of my sentence to spend in the county jail. And that was actually when one of my best friends passed away in a motorcycle wreck. So I wasn't able to go to his funeral. That tore me up pretty bad. But that wasn't my rock bottom. It was a stepping stone. But uh, in 2020, I've got a journal entry on this. I was I was coming off about probably a 12-month just just absolute struggle with cocaine. I went through in in the span of about four or five months, and I think I cleared out somewhere between fifteen and twenty five grand in my in my bank account on like strip clubs, cocaine, hotel rooms, pills, weed, alcohol, you name it. To where I mean, there was a few times I slept in my car before I had to like humbly move back home. And the only way I was allowed to move back home was by agreeing to go to treatment. And so I went through to a detox, but I woke up on December or January 21st of 2020. So not that long ago. And I, I could hear a light switch clicking and my, I, I was coming out of a, a cocaine bender and my buddy was in there and he said, man, you, you didn't pay the power bill. And I knew that I had about a week before I got paid on anything. I knew I was, you know, three months past due on my car. I knew I had no money in the bank account. I knew that every one of my credit cards was maxed out. A few of them were charging off. I was behind on rent. I was going to be on the street. Like I knew that. And so at that point, I knew that I had to make a change. So went to my dad to ask for help. And I thought that would be a rock bottom. But my rock bottom actually ended up in Orlando at the Rosin Center at RoofCon 2021. Bought platinum passes to go see the previous contractor that I used to work for before I started my own company because when I left the company I had a I'd sold about 650k and I got paid about 35 grand on that. So there was about 30 grand in, in unpaid commissions. And so we had our own company. We're gonna buy these platinum tickets and go flex on him, right? And uh I, I started drinking super early. At the time I was throwing up for about two hours every morning when I would wake up and get going. And uh, I always just kind of chalked it up to maybe I drank a little bit too much the night before, but it was consistently for about three months. And then when I ran into this guy, it was like 730, 8 o'clock in the morning, and I'd already been drinking like two or three hours and ended up going to the hotel bar after it happened. I told Hunter, I was like, hey, man, I'm just going to leave. He was like, dude, you don't have to leave. And I, I really wanted to because I wanted to go to the pool bar. Ended up drinking the whole day. Woke up the next morning. It was the meet and greet with uh, John Maxwell and Ed Milet, or maybe it was Ed Milet, one of them, and started throwing up again. And my old business partner was like, you know, hey, are, are you good? And I was like, oh, dude, this is this is so normal. It happens to me all the time. But then he was like, 
how much do you drink? And I was like, man, not like not a whole lot, you know? And I said, normally I get about a bottle of Tito's in the evenings and drink that. And then about a 12 pack. And then he was like, bro, what? And I was like, yes, yeah, kind of what I've been drinking. He's like, you're, you're drinking a lot. And that, that probably led to 16 or 18 hours in this hotel. I was, I was on the floor in the bathroom, like shaking, throwing up in the bed, in my boxers with just cold rags all over me because uh, my body temperature was was spiking so hard. So then made it home to Nashville, went and got some blood work done because I was curious. I'm like, what is my body doing? And my my liver and my kidneys were all like in the onset of liver and kidney failure. Wow. And so they ended up sending me to the ER. And that was when a Vanderbilt doctor was like, hey, I need to know your game plan because if you don't get sober, alcohol is going to kill you. And so that's what really caused me to hit that that rock bottom was, you know, having a doctor tell me that you're 100% going to die from alcohol if if you don't stop drinking. And uh, I'd always heard that hey, if you would get out of your own way, you'd be a millionaire. And so I said, man, you know what? Let's try it. Let's see what happens. Like, I, I can write a book, Joe, and we can do a podcast episode on that on how to ruin your life step-by-step instructions. But I'm like, why, why not see what I'm capable of? Why not see what God really intended for me? Why not see why I'm not a statistic? Why not see why I didn't die in that hotel? Why not see why I didn't die in those hotels from like drug overdoses? Let me find out why I wasn't in those cars when they wrecked and people died. You know, like, let's really see why, because if you boil it down, there's a reason I'm still sitting here. Nothing happens by accident, whether you want that to be the universe, God, Allah, whatever it is, nothing happens by accident. So there's a reason I'm here. There's a reason that you accepted my my offer to uh, try and come on a nailed it show i'm just i'm pumped at the opportunity so you know man i love your passion and uh it sounds like it's taking your passion for uh you know drinking and drugs and putting it into business and personal development and pouring into others and that's that's so awesome yeah this is the nailed it business of construction uh you know podcast show (laughs) obviously uh like you said man nothing Nothing happens in business, good, bad, or otherwise, uh, until it happens up here. You know, it's all yep. it's all mindset, it's all belief, it's all what we're committed to. And so that story, that journey you just took us on, man, that was uh that was that was fascinating. Thank you for sharing, yeah. man. I'm sure there's yeah, man. Yeah. I'm sure, you know, there's maybe a few, but at least one person out there I know for sure who right now listening to this, watching this, needed to hear that. And hopefully that will help them to, to take action, you know, whether it's, you know, getting, getting clean or sober or whether it's just really getting out of their own way to see what they're capable of. And, uh, that's what I try to do every day, man. Just like wake up and say, like, man, I have like a gift, I'm blessed. I'm very fortunate, very grateful. And like, I can't be a slacker, man. I got to attack this day because like I've been given these gifts and I got to see what, see what we can do here, you know? So I love that mentality, man. I really appreciate that. And, you know, I just, I hope that anybody that sees this, if they are struggling, can just see that there's there's some hope. And it really doesn't matter what you did in your past, if you're willing to make the the adjustments and the corrections to get on the right path. Um, life is pretty forgiving. Family, friends, they're pretty forgiving. Uh, I know that's one of the things we do in AA. We have to go through and, and try and right those wrongs, make those amends. And they're not fun, but 
when you feel the weight that actually comes off of your shoulders by living an honest life and not living a lie is invigorating. And so that that's kind of the main goal of what I'm trying to have here is just to show people like, hey, trust the process, get out of your own way um, and, and just live an honest life. And you'd be surprised at how fruitful it can be. But, you know, it, just, it means a lot to me to be here. And I uh, just I really hope that this is this is powerful for somebody and that they don't get five minutes in and be like, nah, screw this guy. <laughs> no, no, man. You mentioned that word invigorating and like you are you are invigorating, man. Um, Thanks, man. Uh, you are a revolt certified coach. Uh, it's where you and I met originally a couple of years ago. I've been involved since day one. So, yeah, let's like just real quick, a couple of minutes. Let's give revolt some love. Give Hunter in the community some love. What is that meant for you to be a part of revolt and now a leader in revolt and, and inspiring so many others? I think that's awesome that we're going to shout out Revolt a little bit, man. It's it, it's been incredible for me because, you know, I, I went from a life where people didn't want to be around me to now now people want to reach out to me, want to talk to me. And it, it's not an ego thing. It's it's more like really rewarding to me that I can pour back into some people. And so uh, I, I never thought Revolt was going to be a possibility. I was always familiar with Revolt. I knew who they were. It, it's hard not to because Hunter and the team over there are excellent marketers. And so people understand who they are. And so when I, I was able to get involved, I didn't even really have the money to to get involved, but I was like, I'll go out and sell more to be able to, to do this. Hey, let's break it up into three payments and let's rock and roll. And really just being around the mindsets that are in there, the business owners. I mean, yeah, you've got a core group of guys that you can lean on, but getting to actually go through the retreats with guys and just really be vulnerable and and talk about things that you're dealing with. There's not a whole lot of new problems out there. Uh, Most problems have been worked through by somebody. And when you get around a hundred men it's going to be really hard for somebody not to have been through exactly what you're going through. So that's the biggest thing for me is I, I have a community of men that I can lean on when I have a situation that comes up and I don't know what to do. I mean, I had a business owner call me because I was running my mouth about some of the work they were doing on our apartment complex that was in violation of building codes. And, you know, I was ready to drive to the guy's office and throw my feet up on his desk and be like, let's have a conversation because I'm about that life, you know? And then, so I was able to call JP and be like, JP, when you used to be beating dudes asses, how did you transition away from that to do an adult professional conversation? (laughs) And so JP was able to give me some advice. I know that's kind of a stretch on that one, but you know, in anything from things that extreme to just, Hey, does anybody have an, an SOP for, uh, their sales reps? You know, it's it's an open door policy. Guys are super interactive, but I would say the retreats and some of the special coaches that we get to be a part of that come out to those retreats, like Jacob with his breath work in Texas was incredible. Like Cole, when he came to, to Utah and was able to speak, I mean, there's so much value that goes into that, not even including the stuff that's like in the eight figure blueprint and things like that, that uh, in the revolt training courses that are able to to get people in there. But it's really cool. And, and it really does piggyback off of our core values. And I'm, I'm so grateful to be a part of revolt. So grateful to be allowed to be one of the coaches. It's it's really cool. And it's it's cool to be able to mentor and show some of these guys what what the powers of revolt are and seeing these other guys be able to, you know, 5, 10, 20 X their their business is just fun to watch. 
Yeah, absolutely, man. I started my business back in 2012, 13. And for the first few years, I talk about this all the time because I think a lot of people can relate. I struggled, right? I, I did get traction, didn't make much money. And I was like, man, like I got to figure all this out on my own. And it wasn't until 2015, I joined my first like community mastermind at hired business coach. And my mind was like, whoa, it was like, whoa, like you said, there's not a lot of new problems out there. I'm like, wait a minute. Like you guys understand these problems that I'm going through? Like, oh yeah, that's normal stuff. Like, whoa. Right. And I think like as an entrepreneur and, you know, a man, a, a leader, a father, a husband, like there are some of the worst times that, you know, th that you, that you experience are when you feel like you're the only one going through that challenge or that problem. And, you know, sometimes we have that victim mentality, like why me? Like everyone else has it figured out. Like, why am I going through this? And then you realize like, man, we all go through the same stuff and we can learn and lean on, you know, one another, whether it's mindset, whether it's a tactical, the strategy, the borrowing someone else's confidence or belief or energy, I would never do it any other way. And I've, I've been a yep. part of Revolt from day one. It's an awesome community. I run my own communities as well. And it's like, whether it's Revolt or something else, like make sure anyone out there listening or watching, like don't go alone, find your tribe and go all in. So, uh, Speaking of tribes, you know, shout out Rubicon, you know, <laughs> back to back champs. I completely agree with you because I will have, th this isn't like a brag, it's just a matter of fact. Um, I will have spent more on personal development stuff in 2023 than what I will make. Wow. Mm -hmm. Well, you're investing that, that return, that ROI is mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, yeah. Cause, and all of that is going to come with not only the, the fulfillment I'm getting in my faith family and my fitness area of life, but also in my financials to where, all right, you know, I, I may not be reaping the benefits now, but a few years from now, life's going to be really, really good. I'm still grateful for where I am, but the future is very bright and it's all because where I'm at on my mindset today, because, you know, where we're at five years from now is going to be from decisions we make right now. So if that's continuing to, to do the drugs, drink the drink, the drink, stuff like that, don't be mad when your life sucks in five years. Yeah. But if you're going to make the decision now to change the way that you're operating, thinking, moving, don't be surprised when you've got a really fulfilled life. Dude, that's a great way to wrap it up, man. We're going to have to check in with you in a, in a year or two, three years to see how this vision is uh, panning out. Heck uh, yeah, come on with it. to continue to follow your journey, man. And uh, yeah, really grateful to have you on. Thanks so much for sharing your story, brother. Yeah, man. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And uh, you know we'll stay in touch. Sounds good. We'll see you soon, man. Bye. Right, sounds good, brother. <laughs>